listening to My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. Each episode, we look at the topics that can make our working lives difficult and explore how you can take action to improve things. We want to help you move from simply surviving work to thriving at work. My Pocket Psych is brought to you by Work Life Psych, a team of workplace psychologists who are experts in coaching, training, and structured development programs. You can find out more about how we help people grow and develop at work by visiting our website, worklifepsych.com. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Dr. Richard McKinnon, I'm the Managing Director of Work Life Psych, and I'm delighted to share with you this episode, an interview I had with Rodney Collins. And Rodney is a psychotherapist and coach, and he works in the field of addictions in the workplace. And uh, this is a really interesting conversation, even if I do say so myself. Um, we've covered the topic of well-being previously on this podcast, looking at diverse topics such as stress and uh, sleep and the, the impact of uh, uh, work and technology on our well-being. And in talking with Rodney, I wanted to flag up where our well-being is really challenged by some of our own behaviors, some of our own beliefs that can result in addictive behavior. And in this discussion, you'll hear how some workplace factors can contribute to uh, addictive behavior, substance misuse and substance abuse. Uh, what organizations should really be doing um, to support people in these positions and, and what happens when this behavior is uh, let go for a period of time. Now, if you are interested in learning more about this topic or if anything you hear in this episode prompts you to take some action, we've got some resources uh, to point you in the direction of support in the show notes. And as ever, you can find the show notes at worklifepsych.com slash podcast. They're also contained in the app you're using to listen to this podcast right now. All the show notes from all the episodes are uh, available at worklifepsych.com slash podcast. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, let's have a listen to what Rodney had to say, and I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thanks for listening. So I'm delighted to be joined by Rodney Collins uh, today. I just want to start by saying thank you so much for making the time to join us on the podcast. Um, but could I start by asking you to introduce yourself to the audience? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Uh, sure, absolutely. Thank you, Richard. No, really, I'm, I'm very happy to be here talking about uh, addiction in the workplace with you today. It's a, a subject I care an awful lot about. Uh, and in terms of uh, an introduction, perhaps my, my background might, might help to explain some of that. I am uh, I'm American by birth and uh, worked in New York for a number of years, about 13 or so, before moving to London. Hard to believe it's been almost 17 years now that mm -hmm. uh, I've lived in London. Uh, but when I was in New York, I had a very different career. I worked uh, in uh, finance. I actually started off and trained as an accountant and later moved into finance and worked as a fund manager. And that was work that was really interesting to me because it was highly analytical. It required a great deal of, of um, thought and processing and communication with other people. 
and at the same time, it was very, very dynamic, changed all the time. Uh, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and some news would break and it would just change your complete perspective on the portfolio that you happened to be managing. So it was off to the races every morning. But what I noticed was that over time, that lifestyle where things kept changing all the time was taking quite a toll on me personally. Um, it damaged friendships and relationships because I could never keep an appointment with friends. You know, dinner plans for dinner or film would sort of disappear at the last minute because, you know, news would break or I'd have to hop on a plane to travel somewhere. And over time, I became more and more isolated. So for me personally, um, my story doesn't end in addiction, but what I will say does end, it did end in a sort of um, low-level depression that sort of cast this pall over my life and made someone who was relatively outgoing turn into someone who felt very lonely, isolated, questioning what I was doing. Uh, you know, there was a strain in my relationship at the time as well because I wasn't very happy. And it was at this point that I decided, you know, this life, although it's very interesting in some ways, I think I need a bit more. I think I need to try something else. And that was the move to London. That was the decision to switch into psychotherapy. Uh, and I trained as a psychotherapist once I came here first. Later, uh, I specialized in addictions work. The love of addictions came about because really I loved uh, at the core uh, working with clients who are motivated and clients who are really intelligent at the same time. And what I found was that a lot of people who struggle with addictions really do have both of those qualities. And that's because, you know, life with an addiction uh, can be very challenging, to say the least, in terms of keeping up with one's responsibilities, funding the addiction, uh, worrying about one's health, and, and so on. Uh, but also because I think addiction at the core is about uh, difficulty and processing our emotion for one reason or another. More times than not, there's been either you know, trauma or just uh, difficulty in the past in terms of having other people model properly how to express our emotions, how to regulate our emotions with the use of other people around us. Uh, clients who are addicts were clients who were really motivated to learn these things. They knew these things about themselves. Uh, they just didn't know what to do about it. Uh, and I just thought, well, this is a wonderful uh, place for me to start in terms of uh, the work that I do, working with people uh, like that. Um, I will also say that at the time that I began working in addictions, it's it's less true now, becoming less true. But uh, it was definitely true then that I felt like the psychotherapeutic, psychological models that were treating addiction were lacking in depth. And what I mean by depth is they were lacking in emotional depth somewhat. So I also found it uh, as an opportunity to really try to you know, evolve the practice of addictions work a bit more by, yes, working with the behavior of addictions in the beginning, because you have to, you have to stabilize people. But I would say at the same time, it's important to, once you stabilize the behavior, really to get underneath it, to look at what for that person is actually underpinning these damaging cycles of behavior. Uh, and later on, I would, just as a finishing thought, I will say that I trained as a coach as part of um, my quest really to continue to evolve uh, my, my practice in addictions because I wanted people not only to learn to speak their emotion, to speak 
uh, whatever is going on in their lives with them in terms of conflict, as well as the good, I, I should add. I think good and, and, and bad should go together and often go together if we allow them to. But at the same time, I wanted to help people restructure and rebuild their lives in a way that would make uh, the progress they made sustainable over time. So I finished uh, my training. I, I should not use that word finished. I would say the latest training I did was as a coach, really to help people put together the tools to take the action necessary uh, to keep their progress uh, at a sustainable level. And I'm sure you're sorry you asked me to introduce myself. I'm sure that went on for longer than you wanted. <laughs> Not <laughs> at all. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's Rodney Collins in a nutshell. That's fantastic. Uh, probably the best introduction we've had on the podcast. So we're raising the bar for all future guests. Uh, you're very uh, kind. But thank you for that. I mean, it's it's a really interesting story. Uh, you know, uh, I know a lot of people in the world of psychology broadly have, have come to it as a second career because they've got life experience under their belt. They've trained in one thing and they've decided to do something else. And it's really interesting how your personal journey flagged for you actually I want to do something quite different. There's, there could be more to life than this, but also reflection on what work did to you, what kind of impact it had on you. Mm. And it was something I never would have anticipated beforehand, uh, that, that life in finance, to be honest with you, because if you look at it from the outside, you're surrounded by people. And like I said, I, I couldn't do that job without being in constant connection with others, you know, sharing information or or uh, asking others uh, for an opinion or servicing clients. But at the end of the day, those communications were at a sort of surface level. In terms of my own emotional health, in terms of the, the things that really mattered to, to Rodney as a person and, and were happening around me, uh, you know, I, I really didn't have anyone to speak to, or at least I felt I didn't have anyone to speak to. Uh, that's a lot of what I had to learn. You know, there was an opportunity there uh, for me to change things, and I took it. It's the irony of, of contemporary loneliness, isn't it? We can be lonely while surrounded by people, while surrounded by opportunities uh, to speak and communicate, but we can still feel that loneliness. Absolutely. Uh, you know, especially with such uh, an urban pattern to the lifestyles uh, that exist uh, these days for most people. You know, we're, we're surrounded by people in, in many of the buildings that we live in as well and surrounded by people as we take public transport to and from work every day. Uh, yet we seem to have lost the ability to really uh, communicate and, and, and touch those people on even a, a you know short term basis. Mm -hmm. now, now, we've uh, discussed the general theme of well-being on this podcast before. We've looked at topics, uh, hopefully from a kind of a preventative perspective, a proactive perspective, you know, building your resilience, um, addressing work-life interface challenges, uh, the topic of sleep and improving the duration and the quality of your sleep and so on. Um, looking at addictions in the workplace, that that's almost from a, a remedial perspective, as in there's a problem there, there's an issue there that, that needs to be solved. W with the issue of addictions in the workplace, are you kept busy? <laughs> um, the, the unfortunate truth is, yes, uh, I am kept busy. I, I think that's because in the workplace, um, I think the problems of the individual and, for example, one's uh, family or one's uh, relationship tend to bleed into the workplace uh, at the same time. If you think about it, organizations are built from individuals that belong to other social structures. Excuse me. <clears throat> 
individuals that belong to other social structures. So if you haven't quite managed to work out how to express your your anger and your upset at home or within your family and you come to the workplace and you haven't done that, quite often those same problems are replicated. And I quite often am brought in after uh, the problems develop to a point where they're no longer tenable within the workplace. So perhaps the employee has begun to have frequent absences or maybe there has been an outburst uh, of anger or emotion at work. Uh, then I'm drafted in to work with people on a one-to-one basis or small group basis to try to get them to shift their pattern somewhat. I would say to you, I think what you said was very interesting about sort of addictions, uh, you know, coming into play after the fact somewhat. Part of what I try to do when I go in is to get to organizations to really try to focus on addictions before they flare up as a problem. Hmm. And what I mean by that is I think it's important to train uh, employees and staff and managers what it looks like when a colleague is suffering from addiction so that or even substance misuse or abuse, as we say. So substance mis as a distinction, substance misuse means that uh, there's a substance that might be a valid substance to to uh, to use in some capacity, but it's being used by that person in a way that is inappropriate and harmful to them. Um, it's sort of a, a lower level take on substance abuse, if you will. Mm-hmm. Substance abuse itself tends to imply more of a dependence type thing, where it's not just that you're, I would say, for example, you know, taking prescription pills that were not written to you, but what you're doing is taking those pills and, you know, taking them from other people and going to multiple doctors trying to get a prescription because you no longer have control over your use of the prescription pills. That's more Mm -hmm. substance abuse. So, you know, these things tend to pop up. But if you have educated the staff, the employees, the managers of the organization as to when someone might have a problem, there's a chance to intervene before problems really reach a point uh, in the organization and in that person's life uh, where it's harder to control and manage damage that is done. And so it sounds like from what you've said so far that there there could be. Uh, indications, uh, indicators of behaviors and, and attitudes that could be tolerated for a period of time in an organization, but that they, they reach a kind of a tipping point. Um, and, and does that imply that some of the, the behaviors um, could be welcomed by the organization up to a point? Uh I think that's very, um, very sharp of you to see that. I think that's absolutely true. One of the issues with addiction in the workplace is that some of the behaviors that result from it uh, or the function of the substances abused or the behaviors that are used in addictive practice really do support uh, improved performance, let's say, for example. So if you have someone who may be abusing a stimulant, um, that might mean that they're able to focus for longer periods of time and get more work done. And uh, because of this, they're under greater pressure to continue to use that substance, that stimulant. Uh, because they don't want their work product to slow down. But also, you know, there are some bosses who might, you know, unwittingly just overlook things that have given them a bit of concern because they're thinking, well, things are going well professionally. Uh, He or she's delivering as an employee. I'm not going to dig too much into that at this moment, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so you're right. Uh, Organizations sometimes are a bit hesitant to, uh, to intercede because, that they are benefiting in some way. 
It, it's a pattern I've observed, not not particularly with um, the abuse of substances, but more maybe unhelpful behaviors in the workplace. I let go for quite some time because the, the, of the performance uh, when looked through another lens. So this is a high performing person and I don't really want to have a conversation with them about the way that they are un, you know, they're non-cooperative or they leave people in tears or they have flare-ups every so often because I'm focusing on this part of their performance. And that, that goes on for a certain amount of time and, and they get rewarded and, and they get promoted. But it reaches a point where that's not tenable anymore. And then they're surprised because they have been rewarded and they have been promoted and they feel maybe a little let down by the organization. Absolutely, because the the goalpost has been shifted somewhat there. So yeah. one can understand why that feeling would evolve, you know. But with uh, you know substances, there there are other advantages. Like uh, sometimes there's bonding with fellow employees that takes place. Uh, a sense of camaraderie develops uh, through shared use of a substance. You know, I think of the trading aspect of the world of finance. You see this quite often, where uh, individuals, you know, they they realize they're under immense pressure and there's a lot of stress involved. And one of the ways they deal with that stress is to abuse substances together uh, as a way of forming a bond with one another to, to sort of almost like we've been through the war together, mm. uh, you know, uh, and, and so this is a part of who we are. So it becomes part of the culture uh, sometimes. And stress is real, you know, and some people use substances for stress uh, management as well, I would say. Uh, and something that people don't talk about very often, but that does occur is that there are some clients who might abuse substances who expect, uh, those servicing them. Uh, so if you're selling a product as a salesperson to a client who abuses substances, uh, let's say drinks too much alcohol, you know, the client might want you to drink with them whenever you're with them in a way. And that in itself is a sort of relationship that can be quite problematic, uh, and might be difficult for that individual salesperson to deal with if the organization isn't clear about what the rules are about uh, the use of alcohol and other substances uh, in the workplace and relative to workplace responsibilities. So you could see it from the individual's perspective that, you know, substances uh, that I'm I'm using or misusing help me deal with the challenges I face. They help me get along with people at work. They help me cope with pressure. It helps me, you know, maybe sell more or improve my relationships so I can focus on the positives for, for quite a long time without maybe seeing the negatives. Uh, that is absolutely right. And what you're uh, stating is basically that Addiction is a, um, a progress that is progressive, right? It, it, it moves forward over time. You, you don't see the problems or the problems don't exist when you first start using the substance. You know, it takes a while for your body and your brain to become acclimatized uh, to the influence of the chemicals uh, in a way that tolerance builds up and, and the other negative factors that are the hallmarks of addiction uh, um, begin to arise in a way. So what seems like a perfectly logical and, and helpful strategy in the beginning turns into a nightmare over time. I was in Dublin yesterday running a workshop um, in-house for, for a client uh, all about you know, proactive well-being, so things that people could do for themselves to maintain and improve their well-being, both at work and outside of work. And one of the topics we looked at was, was coping strategies and the different ways that we can cope with, with pressure uh, or setbacks or difficulties, you know, whatever those things are we don't like at work. And one of the challenges is 
you know, flagging up for ourselves when our coping becomes unhealthy or unsustainable. I could do this today. You know, the example I was giving was, well, you could go for a pint after work to help you feel better after a bad day. And you could go for two pints or you could go for a few pints a few days in a row. There does come a point at which the way you're coping neither helps the problem back in the workplace and is also having a negative impact on your well-being. You know, for individuals, it can take a while for them to realize that the way that they're coping with pressure is actually potentially making the, the situation worse. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. And from my point of view, what's important about what you said uh, is that from an, for the individual, from the individual's perspective, I think one of the big keys to escaping these harmful patterns and, and learning more about yourself and when those coping skills are beginning to falter is making sure that you're in touch with, attached to, aligned with other people uh, whom you trust, who can give you feedback that you don't uh, take in as judgmental. Mm. And, and say to you, you know what, I've noticed a change in you. Maybe you want to think about doing something different. And I could see how that could be a real challenge when the substance misuse or abuse is at a team level, because we're all doing it together. We're all doing it together. So in that case, actually, the group tends to reinforce the negative behavior. So you need something to serve as a ballast. What, what the hope is is that somewhere within the organization at a high enough level, the appropriate policies have been written out, discussed, uh, and also communicated and uh, monitored and reinforced within the organization. Because the organization management hopefully serves as a check on harmful behavior, uh, like you might see within a peer group uh, addiction sharing culture. Mm -hmm. So for the individual who is misusing or, or abusing a substance or substances um, because of work or at work, we've, we've discussed how it might continue because they see the positives. What kind of negatives do you see in individuals? And, and when that comes to light, how does it become obvious to them or to those around them? Yeah, the, the, the sad truth is that if addiction is allowed to develop relatively unfettered, sometimes the circumstances that come out of it are, are quite dire. Um, I guess on the, on the lower end in terms of problems, you start to notice that it's really difficult to uh, keep up higher production levels if you've been very productive without the, the drug. So performance might uh, begin to suffer if you try to stop taking the drug or if you develop tolerance. And you don't want to, you know, increase your dose uh, of whatever substance you're abusing. So uh, there's the the difficult decision that the person in the workplace has to make. I would also say that um, in terms of the bonding that we would normally like to take place in terms of team building and, and work relationships in the workplace, what you find is when there's a an addictive agent that's shared amongst the group, the bond is really with the substance that's being abused versus the connection that you would hope would be engendered between individuals. Mm. And what I'm saying is once you remove that addictive agent, that those relationships are harder to maintain. And therefore you lose a bit of cohesion uh, amongst the staff within the workplace. Potential legal issues could crop up, of course, and that would be at both the, uh, the individual and the corporate level. So for the individual, uh, you know, something I've seen from time to time is around uh, behavioral addiction. So for example, with the use of pornography, if someone uh, is not able to control their use of pornography to the extent that they feel the need to use in the workplace, well, that could have legal ramifications uh, for the company if 
uh, some other employee happens to glance at the screen and sees what's there, they could be quite offended by it. Uh, there could be problems depending on the content of what's being viewed, if it's material that's viewed as contraband or I illegal in some way. So that's a way in which legal issues can also uh, develop from not really uh, tackling the addiction at an early enough period. Uh, so, yeah, those are a few examples that come mm -hmm. to mind. Mm -hmm. And I can see from that group um, context, it, it might be really challenging for someone, and I'm skipping ahead to the other end of their journey, but really challenging for an individual to realize, wow, the only reason that I spent time with these people was because of this substance. Now that I'm looking at it differently, I don't, I don't like them or I don't like the way we interacted. You know, there's, there's maybe a bit of a vacuum left for them then. And then at that point, you know, what do you do if you haven't learned the skills of forming healthy relationships? Mm. Because many of the people that uh, suffer from addiction are people who are just following in the footsteps of those around them. Uh, you know, they were observing at a, a young age that, well, you start to drink uh, at about uh, 11 or 12 and in the uh, in the late morning or afternoon. What's what's so wrong with that? Everyone does that. Mm. Or I often hear, you know, sometimes I hear people say to me, Oh, I, you know, I drink moderately or so, or I get home at about six and, and maybe I drink um, uh, a bottle and a half or two bottles of wine every night and then I go to bed. Well, you know, from my perspective, just from a, a sheerly biological and, and not judgmental perspective, uh, that's a fair amount of alcohol to be taking in, you know. Mm. Um, but it's been normalized because of the culture in, uh, in which the person finds him or herself. This is there, I was going to say there is, but is there also a, a societal issue? Because again, going back to Dublin yesterday to the workshop, we had a, a brief discussion about how alcohol, for example, is socially acceptable and many what we might call hard drugs. And if someone said I had six pints versus I went home and I used heroin, you know, people would respond very, very differently to those two drugs. And yet they could both be abused. That's absolutely true. By the way, I wish I had attended that workshop. Sounds like you were talking about a lot of things that related to the work that I do. Um, I think that uh, alcohol is probably a, a special case in that it just is so ubiquitous w within our society. And there's so many triggers that make it difficult. You know, these the, the cheap price of alcohol. Uh, that exists where people can buy it, you know, um, for at just very, very, uh, at a very, very low cost. Uh, in addition to the fact that it's considered to be perfectly acceptable within a social environment um, to drink and, and, and perhaps even drink slightly to the bit of excess, right? It isn't the end of the world. But you're right. The way that we've constructed this notion of substance abuse and addiction, alcohol is in a very different category from what we call some of the harder substances like uh, heroin or, or cocaine and, and the rest. Personally, it, you know, with the work that I do, I try very hard not to, to pass judgment on the client. I'm not there to tell them um, you should be using substances or you should not be using substances. What I'm trying to do is to help them to attain the life that they wish to have. And people usually come to me because they feel they've lost control and they can no longer live that life. So an important part of what I'm saying to a lot of the clients with whom I work is if you want to change this behavior sustainably, you're going to have to change the people around you and the way that you're living your life. Because if you're trying to change your behavior in isolation and you're stepping back into the same pressure cookers and the, and the same relationships with other abusers, 
that is pretty much too much for just about anyone to be able to withstand, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's true on sort of the micro level in terms of relationships. But I think we could extend that out to a broader social level at the very same time. I think it becomes important for us to figure out yeah, you know, who we are and, and where we need to draw lines and take stands. And if that means that you don't go to the corner supermarket because they, you know, have sales and it's just too tempting for you. Well, it may mean that for a while you need to do your shopping elsewhere for a bit, someplace that doesn't, you know, trigger you in quite the same way. Our environment around us definitely forms and shapes who we are as people. Absolutely. I'm thinking of the power of context here and the different contexts we find ourselves in and how we need to relate to those contexts and how we behave differently in different contexts. And, and I don't know why, because I've never smoked, but I'm, I'm, I'm aware that in a lot of smoking cessation programs, when people really want to quit smoking, one of the topics that comes up is, well, yeah, you've stopped for a little while. Well done. That's great. Now, how will you respond the next time you're offered a cigarette. So it's not you, but someone's offering it to you in this situation. Think about these different contexts where you might find yourself. How will you respond to that? And I guess there's an overlap here with these substances you're talking about. You may find yourself with the best will in the world around people and, and situations and emotions that could lead you to, to misuse again. Precisely right. And that is why I think it's, it's really important not to just focus on the behavior. Because if you're just focused on the behavior, you may be able to to resist the first time that you're asked if you want a cigarette. But it becomes very hard to resist that second and third time if you haven't dealt with what's underpinning um, your your drive, your need to smoke all the time. Mm. So, you know, if if it is about stress at home, if it is about feeling um, that you're not, you know, where you wanted to be in your life at whatever age you are, it's time to examine those issues, uh, to process them and deal with them and do something about them. And that makes the sustainability of smoking secession that much easier. Mm-hmm. So, so let's have a look at um, maybe a more positive aspect of this. If, if we want to provide assistance, if we want to make uh, life easier for someone, how could we, what are the signs we would watch out for in our colleagues uh, when it comes to substance abuse? Uh, okay, that's that's a good question. What I would say to you is that uh, what you're looking for are changes. So let's say, for example, changes in reliability of some sort. Maybe you have someone who's who used to be on time for meetings who all of a sudden either misses them altogether or repeatedly shows up late to them, or there's a dip in performance level in some meaningful way where accuracy drops off or uh, the work done is is sort of being done just to be finished versus uh, being done at a, at a at a higher level. Mm. Uh, that you think uh, suits that person. Uh, That's one example. I would say that there are also clients, sometimes you can spot them, you know, when you go to social events and they tend to be the last client to leave all the time because, uh, you know, they don't quite want to stop drinking and they're trying to encourage other people to stay a little bit longer, a little bit longer. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem, but perhaps that's someone that you might want to uh, keep an eye on if you're concerned about them uh, in some way. Mm. There can be changes in personality. Um, there can be changes in risk tolerance, right? So maybe someone who used to be quite conservative all of a sudden is willing to sort of you know, take that extra risk or two or three uh, in terms of uh, decisions made at work. Um, and then there are other things that are more physical because quite often when you have problems with alcohol, for example, um, 
there are physical injuries that occur because people are quite often have ataxia where they lose their balance and they trip and fall a lot more often. Uh, and they might they end up with, you know, perhaps some um, um, bruises on, on their body that might be uh, visible uh, by other employees. You know, if you see a, an employee, a fellow employee or a fellow staff member with bruises in their body, it's important to, to ask how they got there. They could have gotten there through many paths. And some of those paths are, are quite negative And maybe that person needs a bit of support. Mm. And, and it strikes me from, from that brief description that some of these changes in performance, some of these changes in personality and how people respond to you at work um, could also be caused or indications of job-related stress. You know, there are things yes. we look out for that, you know, how do you spot stress? Someone may not put their hand up and, and say, I'm feeling stressed, but we can infer that by by how they're behaving. So it's it's that plus any of these other things where it might be useful for a manager to sit down with someone and, and ask them how they're doing. Uh, that's right. I would agree. And this is where the, uh, a term that my clients uh, always ask about when I use it in front of them for the first time acting out. This is where acting out is taking place. I, I'm not able to verbalize, you know, what's going on in my life. So I'm forced to act it out through behaviors and hope that you notice. Mm. And that's what's taking place here. So the the importance of managers and fellow colleagues keeping an eye out for each other and not being afraid to have a conversation with someone, not necessarily bringing up addiction, but maybe asking them about their general well-being and if they could do with, you know, someone to, to listen to them or someone to support them. I think that is a, a great way to handle these situations. You know, of course, you, every situation is different. But if one is able to show a general level of concern, even if in that moment that person isn't ready to discuss it, it could be that in a few weeks or a few months' time, things have evolved to the point where they are ready to discuss it and they know there's someone there to whom they can turn. Now, l- looking at this from a slightly more more cynical perspective, you know, I, I, I've encountered a lot of people in the workplace who would shy away from giving a colleague feedback because they would see that as a very, very difficult conversation to have. And the discomfort of that would drive them in the opposite direction. I can imagine a lot of people would view this kind of conversation as being incredibly uncomfortable to have. So have you any um, suggestions for how a manager or a colleague could have this kind of conversation with someone at work, um, you know, stressing the importance of that, but not making it a big deal? Yes. Okay. So what I would say is, first of all, this is where the importance of having a policy in place beforehand uh, is important. It's great if there's a manual that one can turn to to see what steps are appropriate in these circumstances. So that takes away some of the, hopefully, some of the perceived risk that the person doing the intervention, if you will, um, might might feel is uh, taking place. The other thing I would say to you is that the tone with which one speaks is incredibly important. If you're coming across with compassion, if you're coming across with genuine concern, I think most of us would uh, tend to at least tolerate what's being said to us uh, in that point of view, even if it upset us in some way because it's, it's showing us a truth that we don't want to face. Uh, I think that makes it much less likely, though, that the person would take offense in some way. Um, I, uh, in addition to that, what I would say is that if you're someone who is close to someone in the workplace, meaning in terms of a relationship that might extend 
outside of work or, you know, your, your key peers in the workplace uh, and you've known each other for some time. Uh, sometimes, oddly enough, these are the hardest relationships in which people uh, can share difficult news with one another, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's almost like you don't want to, to, to put the good relationship at risk in, mm-hmm. in some meaningful way. But at the same time, I would just ask you to keep perspective about what's happening with your colleague. Uh, because, like I said, addiction is progressive. So if you're not able to somehow uh, confront or introduce the issue now, that means that that person is being set up for a very difficult fall, potential fall, I'll say, uh, a bit later on in time. So the, the charitable thing, the generous thing, the caring thing really is to at least attempt to make some sort of, of an introduction, excuse me. So the, the char- charitable and generous thing really is to make some sort of an introduction uh, of the issue or, or, or to at least find some way to discuss uh, what's happening before the situation turns too ugly. Great. What have you seen in, in organizations where these things go unaddressed, where maybe discomfort or turning a bit of a blind eye um, leads to people to continue to abuse substances? Yeah, I think organizations really do run some pretty serious risks when they don't address these issues. I think um, absolutely there's a decrease in productivity that that takes place because the person isn't 100%. The person is working uh, with the use of substances. And even in the beginning when there seems to be a a benefit to the use of the substance, if you're looking at your employees with a long-term view, you're realizing that that added uh, productivity can't last forever. Uh, and in the end, you're going to have to deal with an employee who's been compromised in terms of health and uh, a career progression in some way. Some, uh, of course, there's a financial aspect to the use of uh, some substances that can be pretty, um, you know, pretty high in terms of cost. And there are some organizations that suffer things like embezzlement or they notice an increase in shrinkage uh, when there is a problem with addiction in the workplace. And that's simply because the addict uh, is looking for a source of funds uh, to really fuel or pay for their uh, substance abuse. There are there could be really collateral damage to staff relations. So someone who is on the roller coaster ride of substance abuse uh, is not going to be able to form relationships as healthily or respond appropriately in difficult situations in the workplace or with clients uh, as one uh, would would hope they would be able to do. The possibility of injury claims, if one is under the influence, of course, the risk of injury and accident uh, goes up uh, quite markedly. So companies have to keep this in mind. And then I think the biggest one is is uh, absenteeism and increased sick leave. You know, that's related to the decline in productivity. Uh, before, I was talking about it in terms of someone who's actually there in the workplace consistently. But someone who's really undergoing challenges around substance abuse or other uh, addictive behaviors is going to be more likely to be absent from work because let, perhaps they had a, a you know they a bender the night before and they were not able to get up in time um, to get into the office and they just decide to call in instead of uh, showing up in a disheveled state or a, a subpar state um, and increased sick leave tends to take place as well because. Um, Using substances, abusing substances is not a healthy pursuit. I don't think it, it helps us in terms of um, being able to remain healthy and, and keeping our uh, uh, resistance up against uh, um, um, 
you know, uh, the challenges and stresses of life. But it's also true that, again, if you're not feeling well or if you don't want to be discovered, sick leave is there as uh, an option uh, to keep you out of the workplace uh, at those moments where you are at most risk. So just taking a step back to summarize, because we, you know, we've covered a lot of points and it's been really great yeah. to learn more about this. It's been, it's been great, great for me as someone who doesn't work in, in this space. But, you know, it, it, it may be that there are many people that are in our workplaces that are misusing or potentially abusing substances. And we could and should keep an eye out for changes in their behavior, personality, and so on. And that it, it's maybe not what we uh, might first expect um, as the problem. You know, we, we've talked about alcohol a lot, but you mentioned pornography in, in passing, and that, that's something that could be um, an addiction for an individual. So it's not potentially the the obvious things that, that people think about. And left unchecked, this can have serious consequences, of course, for the individual, but for the organization as well. And so it's um, really important for the organization to have thought through addiction and have some policies and processes in place. And for individuals, whether they're a manager or not, to be able to take those first steps to ask someone if they're okay, how they're doing, if they see these kinds of changes. That sounds like a great summary, because what we're saying at the core is that addiction is a, it's a health-related issue. It's, it's not an issue of morality, first and foremost, right? If we don't deal with it in the workplace appropriately, you could have a person who is someone that everyone admires. Uh, you could have a person who is a very good employee, who historically has been very productive and contributed a great deal, uh, who somehow gets lost who falls through the cracks, who has to shift or end their career prematurely because they haven't been uh, examined and treated properly for what is an illness. And that's, I think, the true travesty uh, when it comes to addiction. You know, addicts are people just like everyone else. They just deal with the problems that they have in a way that causes damage to them over a longer period of time and that's harder to control or break once they become aware of what the issues are. Ronnie, I just want to say thank you so much for that really great introduction. I mean, maybe more than an introduction uh, to this topic. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure we, we may get some questions about this topic from our listeners. And I'd love to hear from the listeners um, if they have those questions or if they have that feedback. I'm going to make sure that in the show notes, um, we I, I include um, contact details for you so so people can, can get in touch with you uh, directly and find out more about you. As a first step, though, if this conversation that we've had maybe worries someone who's listening to this, what would be your advice to them? Uh, if they're worried as an individual themselves in terms of their own uh, practices with substances or behaviors, what I would suggest is that you talk to a professional about it. Uh, and that could be either an addictions professional uh, directly, or it could be that you have a good relationship with your GP. GPs are well-trained to go through the basic screening process uh, to help you determine whether or not there is a problem. And from there, they can make a, a referral uh, to another professional who's appropriate if need be. Great. And um, what, what I would plan to do is maybe put a few resources in the show notes as well so people could find out a little bit more about these topics um, and maybe um, decide decide what to do on, on the back of that. Um, Excellent. 
Rodling, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to speak with you. I hope we can have another conversation about this in the future because as, as you're kept busy, this is a societal issue and it's one that overlaps with the workplace, which is our focus on this podcast. I'm sure there'll be opportunities for us to, to have further discussions. Well, Richard, thank you for having me and I would look forward to speaking to you again. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening. <laughs>